Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The latest on COVID and monkeypox. The CDC guidelines are completely wrong. They're not evidence-based. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new climate action plan paves the way to a greener, more resilient San Diego. You know, it's a beautiful vision. So it's just a, really a question of, do our elected leaders have what it takes? What the Padres' latest trade means for the team, and we'll take you to a pirate ship at Big Bear Lake. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. As President Biden contends with a rebound case of COVID, health officials have been scratching their heads at just how unpredictable the virus can be. Rebound cases, initially thought to be rare, are becoming more common, while the exact guidance over isolation periods remains in question. Additionally, the lingering effects of long COVID, which impacts millions of Americans, is still being understood in the scientific community. And to make matters more complicated, another virus is demanding the attention of health officials nationwide as San Diego follows the state of California in declaring a public health emergency over monkeypox. Joining me once again with a COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Joining me once again with a COVID update and more is Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jane. Always good to be with you. It's being speculated that President Biden's second bout of COVID was caused by a Paxlovid rebound. What can you tell us about this phenomenon and how common it is? Well, it's more common than what we initially thought with Paxlovid because those trials that showed us the near 90% efficacy of preventing hospitalizations and deaths was done during the Delta variant. And we know Omicron, especially the one we're dealing with right now that the president had he had his virus sequence. It's BA5, which is, of course, dominant throughout the country. That's a much tougher virus. So the chance for it to uh, replicate after initially uh, the Paxlovid effect is, is higher. We don't know exactly what that percent is. I think it's well over 30%. We also know some people have that happen even without Paxlovid treatment, especially with this current 
virus that's such a formidable one to uh, to fight against. The president's uh, reinfection has also sparked some debate over isolation protocols. What are your thoughts on best practices? Yeah, this is really important because the CDC since January uh, put out new guidelines of five-day isolation. And if you're feeling well, just go wear a mask, which is what the president did, except the difference for him is that he's having rapid tests every day, probably also even a PCR test. So what was, I think the problem here is that he went out after day five following CDC guidelines, and then by day seven, you know, he tested positive again. The, the CDC guidelines are completely wrong. They're not evidence-based. The, the average time that it takes uh, for to clear an infection is much closer to 10 days, seven or eight days. And the 10-day isolation guideline is what we should be using. So unfortunately, the current CDC guidelines that are now so many months uh, out there and so wrong uh, are helping to spread the virus because people aren't testing. They're just following. There's no tests that are part of that guideline. It's just five days, feel good, just go ahead. And that's really uh, unfortunate. As we said earlier, long COVID is another aspect of this virus. Have we learned more about that since we last spoke? We're learning every day about long COVID. Uh, I think this week we're going to have a big report, um, you know, always with match controls, that is people who didn't have COVID, to get a better handle on the incidence of, because it's been all over the map from 3 or 5% to 30%. Turns out it looks like it's somewhere in the middle, about 12%. That is the percent of people who get COVID and either right away or then days or weeks later have uh, symptoms that are durable, that can be disabling. There's about 12% that are going to fit in that category. But what we don't have, Jade, is any treatment yet. Uh, we don't have enough of the data about the immune-mediated parts, the autoimmune, or just the fact that there's still viral remnants or even intact virus. It's in a reservoir in the body. And then there are some people who have very different symptoms that aren't really uh, factoring in the immune system. So we still have much more to learn and we really need a treatment. But one thing we do know, if you never get COVID, you don't have to worry about long COVID. And that's what the thing is right now about being cautious. If you haven't had it, no reason to, to lower your guard. What's the COVID situation here in San Diego? Are we seeing any sort of a plateau or decline in cases? Yes. Uh, the good news now is that as of this week, I think we can pre be pretty certain that we're starting to plateau, that we're starting to get over this BA5 wave. It's way dominant. You know, 86% of the new cases are BA5, but it looks like we have maxed out. The only other question, uh, Jade, is how long this will last. Will it go on for weeks or will it start to come down pretty quickly? But we should be heading into a much more favorable phase soon. And the good thing, another good thing, is we don't see another variant out there yet that's competing with BA5. So maybe we'll get a respite for a while. Wouldn't that be nice? Should we be cautious about this data, though? Oh, yes. You know, if there's one thing about COVID, it's to be cautious. There's so much unpredictable features, like who's going to get long COVID? It's a lot of it unpredictable. What's going to be the next variant? We're likely going to see one that can compete with BA5, but so far we don't see any real sign to that. But no, you never want to be thinking that this pandemic is really over until we go a stretch 
which we aren't likely to do, where we have such containment of the virus at such low levels. In order to do that, I think we really need to get these nasal vaccines and a pan-coronavirus vaccines into high gear. And the good news is we just heard from India yesterday of a successful 4,000-person vaccine trial. And hopefully that's just one of many, and that's going to help us get through this. The Biden administration has been considering a wider availability of a second booster dose in the coming months. Do you think this would help our current situation? Well, you know, I'm concerned because we have so many boosters that are going to be discarded. Why not use them? Particularly, we had a big study this week for the benefit in healthcare workers to ward off infections, essential workers. So I'd be in favor of opening it up now for all those vaccines that we have already. But we don't know when the BA5 vaccine, which is going to be updated, uh, supposed to be available in September. I think that's optimistic, probably more like October, November. We don't know that's going to work significantly better than the original vaccine. Hopefully it will. But also, we don't know what variant we'll have right then. So while it's great that that's being pursued, the chasing of a variant strategy is not nearly as good as coming up with a vaccine that will knock out all variants, uh, no matter where this virus evolves over time. And I want to switch gears now to monkeypox. Uh, Just yesterday, the county declared a state of emergency amid a severe vaccine shortage. Do we know why this vaccine is in short supply and, and how exactly it's being distributed in the county? You know, we had a huge stockpile in the country. We just unfortunately let that expire, not knowing that we're going to see this virus uh, become such a big issue. The vaccines are made in Denmark, that they were actually helped by U.S. efforts, but we have to get them from Denmark. There's a profound shortage in the country. Hopefully that's going to be alleviated in the weeks ahead. But right now, um, that's certainly the main strategy. And it's just another catch up uh, like what we saw with COVID. The difference is at least there's effective vaccines that are in high production right now. Unlike COVID vaccine rollout plans, the monkeypox vaccines are being distributed to healthcare providers instead of being available in a central location. Uh, What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of this approach? Well, you know, there's trade-offs, of course, as you're alluding to. Uh, Any way we can get them out efficiently to the people that uh, really need them is is crucial. The, you know, our biggest bottleneck right now is just the number of vaccines. Hopefully the distribution plan won't be something that will hold things up. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thanks again for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jade. An updated climate action plan was approved by the San Diego City Council yesterday, and it contains one huge new strategy. The city not only vows to eliminate natural gas in new construction, but plans to embark on a program to retrofit existing buildings, including whole neighborhoods, from gas to electric heating and appliances. The target date is 2035. Mayor Todd Gloria praised the updated action plan. This climate action plan is our strategy to create a city with more efficient buildings, healthier lifestyles, good paying green jobs, and more resilient communities. 
The plan to ban natural gas makes up 40% of the carbon reduction proposed in the new Climate Action Plan, with a continued emphasis on renewable energy sources and reducing car travel with public transit, biking, or walking. Joining me is Nicole Capritz, founder and CEO of San Diego's Climate Action Campaign. And Nicole, welcome back. Glad to be here. Did you expect the city to approve such a sweeping upgrade to the Climate Action Plan? Yeah, I mean, we've been working on this for almost two years now. So it's it's not a surprise at this point, but obviously we're pleased that the city is stepping up and saying like, we have to be bold, we have to be audacious. We have to really transform everything about our economy. And so making that commitment is a big deal. And so we are, I wouldn't say surprised, but we are, uh, you know, gratified. Can you explain what it might entail for the city to electrify nearly all existing buildings that now use natural gas? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge undertaking and it won't be done all at once, right? You're going to do it incrementally over time. And what the city is going to need to do is develop a plan, right? So to prioritize like which buildings to start with, what neighborhoods to start with, you know, um, et cetera. And so it it will require basically replacing appliances, right? We all mostly, I shouldn't say all, but most folks have a gas stove, a gas heater, maybe a gas air conditioner, um, gas water heater. So there's a lot of appliances that have to be changed out. So it's it's not like you have to go underneath the house and change up all the pipes, but you do have to replace appliances. So that's going to take obviously a lot of subsidies, a lot of rebates, a lot of incentives. There's going to have to be uh, again, kind of prioritization about what buildings to go into first and how who gets what rebates and how much, you know, obviously focusing in you know, something we're as an organization going to ensure is prioritized is going into the communities that are most impacted by the climate crisis and probably have contributed the least and maybe don't have all the resources to do kind of a major transformation like this. But yeah, it's going to be, it's going to have to be done with a lot of care and thought, but it's also pivotal. I mean, right. Everything's on the line at this point. I think everyone has seen what the climate crisis is doing in the, like today in the near term and kind of what the future might hold. And so we've, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. And this is one, you know, really important strategy to get there. How else is this new climate action plan different from the original? Well, they sort of doubled down on the uh, providing transportation choices. So making it retrofitting our communities and our streets so that they are bikeable and walkable and transit friendly. And that also means that they are doubling down on the idea that we need a lot more housing of a lot different types of housing, right? So moving away from kind of the suburban single family sprawl that San Diego was designed with initially and really emphasizing emphasizing that we need a lot of different housing types for a lot of different income levels and a lot of different types of families. And that, you know, if we can do that, if we can have more infill and mixed uses and more density closer to corridors that have, you know, protected bike lanes that have wide sidewalks, right, that, that have streets that are safe, um, that have transit that's accessible and frequent and affordable, then we can really reduce the number of um, cars on the road and we can reduce the number of um, miles traveled. The city is also doubling down on electric vehicles 
and the infrastructure that's going to require. And all of these, by the way, I should say all of these strategies are going to be required, are going to need funding. So, you know, we're, we're, there's going to be a lot of partnerships with the state and federal government to make all of these things happen. But they are really kind of saying we need to do more. Like the first climate plan was a great first step, but now we need to kind of triple what we what we committed to in 2015 because that's what the moment needs. That's what the moment requires. Does anything give you cause for concern in this new plan? Yeah, that's a great question. I wouldn't say anything gives us concern other than can we do it? And what I mean by that is do we have the political will to do that? Because for the past seven years, the city has failed to successfully and meaningfully implement the first climate plan. So the pause that we have is not about does the technology exist? Can we figure out a program? But, you know, can the elected officials be brave enough to figure out what it's going to take and find the funding and develop the strategy and uh, really make the hard decisions and choices when they're facing, you know, perfect example is there are community members who are really against adding infill and density to their neighborhoods, but that's essential. It's not only essential because we're in a housing crisis, but it's also essential because housing policy is climate policy. So we need the elected leaders to sort of stand up and say, Hey, this is, this is got to happen. We, you know, of course we want input and we want help designing this new future, but we've got to get people out of the cars and we've got to build, you know, uh, more dense housing, affordable housing everywhere. I've been speaking with Nicole Capritz, founder and CEO of San Diego's Climate Action Campaign. Nicole, thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The San Diego Padres shook up the baseball world yesterday after trading several players for 23-year-old superstar outfielder Juan Soto from the Washington Nationals. In a deal that some are calling one of the biggest deals in MLB history, the trade was just the most recent bold move the team has made in its effort to bring San Diego its first World Series title. Here to tell us more is Bryce Miller, sports columnist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Bryce, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So can you tell us about the centerpiece of this trade, Juan Soto? Who is he and what makes him so unique? Well, a couple of things you need to know on Juan Soto. One, every team with the ability to get him wanted him. He's This gets thrown around a little bit, but it absolutely applies to Juan Soto. He's a generational talent. He's led baseball the last two seasons and on-base percentage. And why that matters, it makes him, by default, the toughest out in baseball offensively. 
couple of years back, he led all of baseball in OPS. And that's a, an analytic that's kind of the gold standard in the game on base plus slugging. It's a combination of getting on base and having power. And that's, that's the measurement of, you know, offensive excellence these days in the analytical world. And he's leading baseball. Uh, he led baseball last year in walks, and he's leading in walks this year. And it's one of those things he completely changes your offensive dynamic. It changes your lineup. The lineup protection increases for everybody around him. It's just on and on and on what he can do for a, a team that's offensively challenged uh, with some of the best starting pitching in baseball. He And what he really does is he gives them a chance to compete in the playoffs and maybe make a run in October. And though the headlines are all about Soto, uh, this trade included many players and a third team. Who else was involved? Well, in the last 48 hours, the Padres have been involved in either bringing in or sending out 19 players. Five of them came to the Padres, obviously, including Juan Soto. But they also picked up Josh Hader, best closer in the game, a left-handed closer they got from the Brewers that people didn't even know was on the market. Um, So that changes the back end of the game in terms of the bullpen and and uh, closers are just uh, worth their weight in gold in the playoffs. Yeah, there were a lot more pieces, but uh, the Padres decided to invest a ton of draft capital, prospect capital, to get a guy like Juan Soto, but they made other moves that, uh, that really improved the team as well. In a recent column you wrote in today's Padres universe, all things are possible, but that hasn't always been the case in the Padres' history, has it? No, they, they've operated for most of their life, going back to, to the late 1960s, they've operated as a small market team, despite being in you know the eighth largest city in America, although it's the 27th largest uh, media market currently, not big spends, not big payroll. Uh, they went over the luxury tax last season, which is unprecedented for a Padres team. And, and that's really, you might hear that called the CBT, competitive balance tax. It's the governor on teams like the Yankees and Dodgers just outspending everyone without facing any penalty. Uh, the Padres now are trending. They're over the, the CBT again for this season. So they're going to pay overage fees just to try to compete now over the next three seasons when they have Juan Soto available for postseason runs. So it's not just the money you see invested in the players on paper. It's that overage fee, that tax that's another indicator of just how much they're trying to compete and how far they want to go in October. This went back a few years ago. They sent me the Dominican Republic to, to do a thing on the Padres Latin Academy. They had never at that point spent more than $5 million in any given year in the international market. And I think that year they spent 80. So they've trended up. They have, you know, now three contracts over $100 million in that clubhouse. It's uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, and now Joe Musgrove, the hometown pitcher who they extended over five seasons. So wherever you turn to count the money, this this ownership group and Peter Seidler's the principal owner and chairman, um, they're spending money in a way that Padre fans have never seen. Right now, the Padres are in second place in their division behind the L.A. Dodgers, arguably the best team in baseball. Do you think the Padres now have a roster that can compete with and ultimately beat their rivals in L.A.? I think they do. They certainly have the starting pitching to compete with the Dodgers, and maybe that's the Achilles heel of the Dodgers. But they have one of the best lineups, not just in baseball, but in the history of baseball with Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner and and just – pieces all around the diamond that are proven offensive talents. Uh, They know how to play and win in October. 
Uh, now the Padres have added to that starting pitching and put together a lineup that offensively could compete with them. I was having conversations yesterday with people. Somebody asked, well, th- is this an effort to catch the Dodgers in the NOS this year? No, they're not going to catch the Dodgers. What they're worried about and why Juan Soto is here and why they invested so much is they want to be able to compete with the Dodgers in the playoffs this year, the following year, and the year after that. It would be hard to mention the Dodgers today and not mention Vin Scully, the legendary voice of the Dodgers, uh, for more than 60 years, who passed away yesterday uh, at the age of 94. Can you talk a little bit about what he meant for baseball? He meant as close to everything as you can say about a person that didn't play the game himself uh, at, at a major league level. I think I saw a quote from Clayton Kershaw, the veteran pitcher for the Dodgers, who said he might be the most Dodger thing in Dodger baseball. And that that just shows the impact he had, uh, his love of the game, uh, his ability to communicate about the game. He was kind of like the whimsical grandfather later in his career that you just wanted to sit around and hear story after story after story. And, and the voice was singular. It was almost comforting. You know, people would have the game on in their homes just to hear that voice. I remember I was doing a story for the Union Tribune. Um, couple of years back, I think, about late uh, legendary broadcaster Dick Emberg, and I reached out to Vin Scully, and he called back, and I missed his call, and I was, in some ways, I'm so glad he, I did, because he left me a voicemail, and it's very pedestrian. He's just calling to say, hey, I certainly would love to talk about Dick Emberg. Sorry I missed you. I'll try you back, and I last night, I probably listened to that 10 times just to hear his voice again. Just a humble, gracious gentleman who is Uh, exactly what the game needed throughout his entire career. Very, very singular and so sad, and he'll be extremely missed. He'll leave behind a great legacy. I've been speaking with Bryce Miller, sports columnist with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Bryce, thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. San Diego County officials say we're in the midst of a mental health crisis. Millions of dollars in additional funding are being allocated in this year's budget. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman looks at how some of the money is being spent. This is the new way to do crisis intervention work. Gone are the days where, you know, you have to just call 911 for a mental health crisis. This is the new way of doing it. This is the new way to get people help in the community. Brianna Lane leads Telecare's mobile crisis response teams in San Diego County. Referred to as MCRT, teams with clinicians are being dispatched to mental health calls instead of police officers. And call volume has been going up month over month since expanding the program countywide. We will serve anyone and everyone. So we'll have a team that goes on a call to a very wealthy family who maybe one individual is struggling with like passive suicidal thoughts to then wrap that call up and go down to 12th and Imperial to someone who is unsheltered and is experiencing psychosis. Hi, I'm CRT. This is Michael. A Mission Valley hub acts as a dispatch center for the crisis response teams. If someone calls 911 now for a mental health emergency, these teams can respond instead. It's one piece of the county's efforts to turn the behavioral health system away from a crisis response to one that works similar to healthcare. That includes diverting people away from emergency services who might not need them. 
we see um, you know, huge numbers of people, disproportionate uh, numbers of folks with behavioral health conditions showing up to emergency departments. Incredible work happens in emergency departments. There are amazing physicians and healthcare practitioners in emergency departments. But emergency departments are not designed to care for folks with behavioral health conditions. Luke Bergman oversees San Diego County's behavioral health services. This year's budget calls for a $70 million increase and 115 new positions. Part of that is to help create a continuum of care, which, like the health system, would have some type of middle ground or urgent care. That's what crisis stabilization units, or CSUs, are designed to do. Two recently opened in Vista and Oceanside, and there's plans for more over the next few years. It's designed to make people feel more at ease, to sort of cultivate a sense of connection between people who show up there and the care providers who are there. And all of that, all of that, like, you know, stuff that happens at the instance of initial engagement is really significant to what happens farther along in the trajectory. These crisis stabilization centers are where many people contacted by the new MCRT teams end up going. How do we make sure that we're getting folks to the right level of a, of a service in crisis, right? Not going to 911 if, if it's not life emergency, but going elsewhere where they can get that immediate help. Nick Maschione leads the county's Health and Human Services Agency. Our budget is approaching $3 billion. Nearly a billion of that is behavioral health services. Maschione says in his 25 years with the county, he's only seen the need for behavioral health services increase. Officials report we're seeing nationwide trends in San Diego County. Overdoses are up, as are rates of psychological distress. People of color and those with lower incomes are disproportionately impacted, and it's not just adults. The pandemic has caused a spike in mental health visits for kids. Officials want to be proactive and roll out a new program that will evaluate every student. We're going to start it in the middle school settings, screening every kid across all districts in this county in middle school settings. So we'll know, even if there's nothing that would suggest uh, that they are at increased risk of behavioral health issues, we'll know. Hi, MCRT, this is Michael. Mobile crisis response teams are available 24-7 in San Diego County. And now people can call the national 988 crisis line to reach them too. Program operators say most referrals come in from third parties or police, but that's changing as more people become aware of the resource. With the call volume going up, it's definitely kind of told us that having an alternative to law enforcement for mental health crises is very much needed in San Diego. Joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Now, for several years, San Diego County Police Departments have used PERT teams, and that's for psychiatric emergency response teams, to help with behavioral health issues in the field. Do these mobile crisis response teams take the place of PERT? No, they do not take the place of PERT, and those PERT teams are still going out. Uh, if, if you do remember, the PERT teams, those are clinicians that are paired with law enforcement. So they're always out with law enforcement. The difference behind these mobile crisis response teams, uh, they're called MCRT, is that there's no law enforcement response. And, and, and that's the idea behind this is, is to meet people with a more low barrier uh, you know, approach and, uh, and not have that law enforcement response. So PERT is still around and they're still used quite a bit, uh, but this is a new space uh, where they're using non-law enforcement interventions. What prompted San Diego County leaders to allocate, as you say, millions in additional funding for behavioral health response? 
you heard it in the story there, you know, we're seeing nationwide trends in terms of increases of people experiencing psychosis and overdose deaths going up. You know, we know this has been an issue for for years and and the pandemic unfortunately brought a lot more of this to the forefront. Um, so health officials have known that they need to spend money here. Um, obviously, they don't have an infinite pool of money. Um, but yeah, Behavioral Health Services got a pretty large increase, about $70 million, uh, a little bit more than 100 new positions. Um, and that's going to, you know, as they say, they want to change the way that they sort of do behavioral health in the county. And how is the county trying to move these mental health services away from just crisis response to be able to intervene earlier with people experiencing problems? Yeah, they call it the continuum of care and, and trying to move it more towards something that resembles the health system. Uh, as you heard in that story, um, there's a, a sort of need for like a middle ground here. Um, instead of seeking out emergency services, um, maybe that there's a middle ground, sort of like an urgent care for health care. And that's where these crisis stabilization units come in, where people can go, you know, typically staying less than 24 hours, get some help they need. But the other key here is that they want to follow these people. And because, you know, when somebody, for instance, the MCRT teams get called, they go out and make contact with somebody. Uh, they bring them to one of these crisis stabilization units. Uh, they're not there usually for more than 24 hours. So then it's getting them to that next level of care, uh, which a lot of times they found can maybe not be emergency care. Now, can people experiencing mental health issues just show up at a crisis stabilization unit like you can, you know, just show up at an urgent care facility? Yes. I mean, the, the county says that those doors are open. People can just show up. Now, we are seeing uh, a lot of drop-offs there related to these mobile crisis response teams or, or e even law enforcement. Um, but yes, you're right. Anybody can just walk up there and seek some help. And also, Maureen, when we talk about moving away from, you know, sort of a crisis response model, uh, county officials also want to reduce the stigma around mental health, you know, or, or even behavioral health or even substance abuse. You know, they don't want people to feel like that they shouldn't be reaching out because maybe they they don't feel like they're that they're doing okay. I mean, they say that behavioral health impacts everybody. You know, it's not just certain outsets of people. Everybody needs to take care of their behavioral health. Are there more CSUs planned for the county? There are more. They, they've partnered with a lot of different hospitals to build some, some of them even inside of hospitals. And we're seeing the county, you know, take some of their own steps here and opening up these standalone units, Oceanside and Vista. And there are plans for more of those, you know, in the East County, they want to get these all over the county so that people, you know, have that sort of middle ground resource where, where they can just go and get help. You say the call volume has been going up month after month for mobile crisis response teams. Is the county confident it will have the resources to meet the demand? I had that question uh, for the mobile crisis response teams. It's actually uh, contracted out with two different private companies, uh, and they said that the county is fully behind them, and they've they've already made commitments that you know once they see levels of service increases on their end, uh, that they're committing to providing additional resources. Um, and and the woman who runs that program said that that's already happened in a way uh, where they had you know maybe uh, just a couple clinicians at first, uh, and now they've expanded that to three on staff. Uh, so they're bringing in more people as the as the need goes up, and frankly as more people become aware of this service. Speaking of the number of calls, you referenced 911 calls a few times in your report, but the new number to call for mental and behavioral health issues, including emergencies, is 988. How is that transition to that new number going? 
Well, I can say for the mobile crisis response teams, they've definitely seen an increase in the call volume there. They they, they saw an increase when uh, they had all the county law enforcement agencies and their 911 systems sign on here. That's when dispatchers can kind of try to make a call of, you know, does this need to go to a mobile crisis response team instead of a law enforcement officer? Um, but, you know, since that 988 crisis and suicide line went up, uh, they are getting a lot of calls for that. Um, and it's something that is, is is encouraging to them to see that people are, are, are finding that this need is out there. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen. If you are experiencing a mental or behavioral health emergency, the number to call for help and resources is 988. Even in a state where millions struggle to find and keep an affordable place to live, building more of it in California hasn't been a popular solution. That's because over the decades, public housing has become racialized and synonymous with warehousing of the poor and terrible living conditions. But in Los Angeles's Watts neighborhood, one massive public housing project called Jordan Downs is in the midst of what will be a decades-long billion-dollar transformation that will more than double the number of people living there. Its redevelopment is supposed to show the potential of public housing if done right. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez traveled to Jordan Downs to get a sense of the dramatic changes that are being seen in the neighborhood. Here's Watts resident Rick Chilton. I would never think in my wildest dream that they would be tearing down the projects. What's being torn down in slow stages is the old Jordan Downs, row after row of decaying barrack-style housing units dating back to the 1940s. Bars are over every single window, and big no-trespassing signs are on every building. What's replacing this is the new Jordan Downs, townhouse-style apartment buildings painted in warm earth tones with small patios on the first floor and balconies on the floors above. None of the windows have bars over them. Honestly, the new Jordan Downs looks and feels like a new suburban apartment complex and not public housing in Watts. So the building that I used to live in was right here, but it's demolished now. That's Shankita Perkins, a lifelong Jordan Downs resident. She was among the first people to move into the first phase of Jordan Downs redevelopment. Oh, yes. I remember like yesterday. Um... It was really exciting. Like, I couldn't even sleep at night because I was just like, it was just awesome. Like, I couldn't sleep. I kept walking around the house. I was eager to decorate. So, yeah, it was really exciting. But the changes at Jordan Downs go way beyond new apartments. On reclaimed industrial land right next to the housing project, there's a new 115,000-square-foot shopping center called Freedom Plaza. In a part of L.A. that's often been described as a retail desert, here, Jordan Downs residents and the wider community can find a supermarket, bank, clothing stores, restaurants, and the only Starbucks in Watts. Many who work in the businesses live at Jordan Downs. Watts resident Sherry Edison says the shop shopping center is something people have wanted here for decades. It's closer to me, and you know, where I live, instead of having to go out the area, I'm glad they brought it to the area, like the Nike store. I like Nike. And the supermarket, oh, too? Oh, excellent. And the restaurants? Oh, yes. I love the Habit Grill. Uh, the burgers are the bomb. <laughs> 
Now, other public housing projects have been redeveloped in the U.S., most notably in Chicago, but those projects soon became political powder kegs. Residents complained they had little say in planning what would come next, and housing activists argued public housing redevelopment was a euphemism for pushing poor people of color out of neighborhoods to make way for gentrification. Doug Guthrie, the CEO of L.A.'s Housing Authority, says when it comes to the redevelopment of Jordan Downs, everything has been done to keep residents informed and part of the process. Got to get the community buy-in to all this. I mean, you absolutely have to to have a, a successful outcome in this. And so we spent years at Jordan Downs engaging the community, and uh, we didn't make any promises we felt we couldn't, we couldn't keep. One key promise at Jordan Downs is a right of return, guaranteeing that everyone who lived there before redevelopment can come back after it's done if they want to. So there hasn't been any forced displacement at all so far. We don't anticipate any. But promising residents they could return to Jordan Downs doesn't mean there weren't plans to change the kinds of people living there. The redevelopment project is adding hundreds of new units to Jordan Downs on purchased land. It was hoped the new units would be rented out at or near full market rates, and some newcomers might even buy units. But that idea has been largely shelved for now, says Marco Ramirez. He's with Bridge Housing, one of the nonprofit developers of Jordan Downs. We can't see ourselves justifying market rate units in this community when there are so many people struggling to make rents. And so market rate units or market rate rents don't make sense right now. And there have been other changes and complications in Jordan Downs' transformation. The adjacent properties that were purchased to build the shopping center and additional housing are on former industrial sites. There are lingering concerns about toxic pollution in the soil, despite cleanup efforts. Then there's the speed of redevelopment. There have been big delays getting federal, state, and private financing for the project, which have set back construction deadlines. Five years after building started, more than half of Jordan Downs' residents still live in the old buildings. Again, here's Marco Ramirez. To date, we have um, between our first and second phase, we have about... 300 original Jordan residents living in the new apartments. So 300 about, and how many more to go? We have about 400. 400 more to go, so you're less than halfway through. Yeah, I'd say we're like 40-ish percent uh, through the redevelopment. Ramirez says some Jordan Downs residents might have to wait 10 years or more before their new buildings are ready as construction deadlines get pushed back. With many of her friends and neighbors still living in old Jordan Downs housing, resident Shankita Perkins says she feels fortunate. I feel like I got lucky because I was in the right spot at the right time. Looking ahead, there are plans to redevelop two other smaller public housing projects in Los Angeles. But housing officials acknowledge there are no plans to do something on the same scale as Jordan Downs for L.A.'s other large public housing projects. Planning, building, and financing the projects, they say, are just too difficult. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, 
we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In the latest stop on the California Report's road trip series, Hidden Gems, Amanda Font takes listeners to the San Bernardino Mountains at Big Bear Lake to board a pirate ship. There are plenty of businesses that offer trips on Big Bear Lake, but for those seeking a more unique ride, there's the Time Bandit. It's a one-third replica of a... uh ship from about 200 years ago, 250 years ago. This is the man who will be at the helm today. My name is John Height. I'm one of the captains on the Time Bandit on Big Bear Lake. Captain John says the mini Spanish galleon was built by a guy in San Diego, in his backyard. He started building it in 1955. His original goal was to sail it to the Sea of Cortez. He completed it in 1969, but uh, lost interest in it along the way and never put it in the water. Instead, this hand-built dream vessel became a tour vessel. First in Newport Harbor, down in Orange County, then it sat around for a while, and eventually it was shipped almost 7,000 feet up the mountain to Big Bear, where it's been cruising the lake for the last 25 years. But in the middle of its life, this boat had another kind of adventure. Okay, so hey, I mentioned the name Time Bandit. Anybody ever see the movie, The Time Bandits? Hey, there we go. One, two, me... That's it? Okay. Time Bandits is a 1981 film written and directed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python fame about a boy who's taken on a wild adventure by a group of little people who sail a ship through time and space. As long as this wind keeps up, nothing can go wrong. The ship featured in the movie is the very same one we're sailing on now. It was used as a set piece in the film and was renamed after its foray on the silver screen. But as she sails around the lake today, the restored Time Bandit is fully decked out like a pirate ship, painted black with red and white accents, a few skeletons tied to the shrouds, those are the rope ladders that lead up the masts, and a flag that says, time flies when having rum. Captain John is also decked out in pirate gear. On board this swashbuckling vessel today are some families with kids, a group of teenage Girl Scouts on a trip, and Shannon and Steve, who are celebrating. It's our 25th wedding anniversary, and and pirates are my thing, and I told my husband that I needed to get on the pirate ship. As Captain John sails us around the scenic western half of the lake, he talks about the ecology and history of the area and points out places of interest. During Prohibition, back in the late teens and into the early 30s. Like the town's old speakeasy. It was called the Zebra House. It was painted black and white on the outside, black and white stripes on the inside, in the zebra room. And of course, celebrity vacation homes. Anybody here here ever enjoy uh, Beavis and his buddy? Like Mike Judge's house. He's the creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill. Or the truly massive house of the guy who invented bubble wrap. I think bubble wrap's been good to him. What do you think? The most exciting of these comes when we stop at Mel Blank's house. 
you know, Mel Blanc. How about Bugs Bunny? Yeah, okay. Well, the guy that did the Bugs Bunny voice, but he also did about 1,500 different voices. His nickname was Man of a Thousand Voices. And what's up, Doc? Well, one of the strangest things I... After Mel died, his son Noel Blank took over doing some of the Looney Tunes voices, and he still vacations at this house. So he's going to come out like his dad used to, because his dad used to come out here. Captain John positions the ship in the small cove near the house, fighting against some strong winds. And out comes Noel onto the back deck with a megaphone. Hey, Bugs Bunny, we're going to have to make a pass with the wind. <laughs> The other passengers giggle with delight at hearing the voice. As we sail on, it's back to the pirate-centric entertainment, like handheld cannon fire, cheesy pirate jokes. What kind of cookies are a pirate's favorite cookie? That would be Chips Ahoy. Very good. And a chance for the kids aboard to steer the ship. When Captain John delivers his passengers safely at the dock after our 90-minute tour on Big Bear's calm waters, I'm really feeling like a sailor's life is for me. Did you have fun? Yes, I had lots of fun. It's great. We'll definitely come back. Oh yeah, we had a good time. What was your favorite part? The Bugs Bunny voice. It was really fun, and yeah, it really it's, it's great cool. for yeah. kids, because yeah. there's a lot of stuff to do. The kids really liked it. Yeah. The little kids. The kids, us. The, the little <laughs> kids. If you're in the mood for a pirate excursion, the Time Bandit sails from Holloway's Marina, April 1st through November 1st. I'm Amanda Font in Big Bear Lake. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 